0: The Old Testament reading comes from Genesis chapter 26. Genesis chapter 26, verses 26 through the end of the chapter. This is God's word. When Abimelech went to him from Gerar... With Ahuzath, his advisor, and Fikol, the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? They said, We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So he said, Let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you and have done nothing to you, but good, and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast, and they ate and drank. In the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths, and Isaac set them on their way, and they departed from him in peace. That same day Isaac's servants came and told him about the well that they had dug, and said to him, We have found water. And he called it Sheba, therefore. The name of the city is Beersheba to this day. When Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Bri the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basmoth, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. Thus far, the reading of God's word. You can turn in the New Testament to Matthew chapter 5. Mm-mm. Matthew chapter 5 verses 21 through 26, this is God's word. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. You will never get out until you have paid the last penny thus ends the reading of God's holy word join me in prayer <laughs> our great God and Father uh, bless us now through the gift of your word How, how good it is and how difficult it is, how searching it is, how easy it is for us to explain it away or to shrink from it. Uh, but we know that this is not the way of blessing. And so we ask, Lord, that you would posture us aright to receive of the blessing that you alone can give. Open our eyes, open our ears, attend our hearts and our minds. For we ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I went into the toy room the other day and both of my kids were crying. Screaming is probably more accurate. (laughs) And as a parent, you quickly have to determine what happened. And I won't name any names. (laughs) I turned to the one. uh, And the one said, I didn't hit him. (laughs) 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 And in fact, that's true. Uh, A toy had been taken. Uh, Cruelty had transacted but no blows had been exchanged. And this particular child was pleading the letter of the law. (laughs) I didn't hit him. (laughs) I'm sure you've had similar experiences with your own kids. Uh, What's more humbling than that is reflecting on how frequently I made the same excuse before the Lord Uh, in my pre-Christian life, but even in my Christian life. It's pretty easy to construct a righteousness based on things you didn't do. Mm. What's interesting is that route is available to everyone. We believe in the doctrine of total depravity, but that just means that man is depraved in all of his parts. There is no part of man that is not touched by sin. We don't believe in utter depravity, meaning that man is as bad as he could be. So even when you were at your worst, conceivably there were still things that you could point to and say, well, I haven't done that. That's the dark sin and its tendency to construct a righteousness of our own. It's not something that we just did as Christians. It's something we still do now. Not did before we were Christians. It's something we still do now. Constantly weighting the scales, as it were. Fixing the curve, as it were. Jesus has just mentioned this righteousness which exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. That's what he just said. Verse 20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's a very important verse for everything that follows. If you don't hear that verse, you're going to miss here all that follows because Jesus is not. Here, highlighting a deficiency in the law. Nor is he really saying anything that the law itself doesn't say. Rather, what he's doing is dismantling that ridiculous standard of righteousness that was then actually popularized by the religious leaders. And the fact that it whiffs with unsettling similarity to that standard of righteousness, which we're constantly constructing for ourselves, is humbling. (laughs) Well, at least I didn't do this, implied like that person over there. So Jesus here is dismantling this popular notion of righteousness and he's setting forth true righteousness. Righteousness of a different quality and kind altogether. And he does so by expositing a number of commandments. So that also means that what he's about to do is operating in two distinct ways. On the one hand, we're supposed to feel an ache over our sin. This is right off the bat. I tell you, anyone who's been angry with his brother, anyone who's called his brother a flippant name is guilty of the hellfires. There's not one of you, myself included, which escapes from that condemnation. Not one of us. Not one of us. And that's humbling. It's remarkably humbling. The ease with which anger is near at hand, the cruelty is near at hand, is remarkably humbling. And so in one sense, this plain articulation of what the law has always called for, not just the bare observation of the letter, but rather a heart truly taken up in love of God and love of neighbor, Pressing that home ought to send us to our knees. (laughs) Anyone walking out of here thinking, I'm fine, hasn't heard at least that layer of the text. You're not fine. Left to yourself, you're not fine. The antidote is not convincing yourself that you are fine. The antidote is finding refuge in the one, just like we sang, whose righteousness truly covers sinners. But we have to go a little bit farther as we've been saying in this Sermon on the Mount that there's a a dual dynamic in what he's unfolding here. He actually expects us to participate in something like what he sets forth here. That's that's a fair uh, interpretive question. Say, okay, does Jesus really expect us to do what he unfolds in 23 through 26 as his followers? Yeah, he really does. He really expects to lead disciples forth in this path of true righteousness. So I expect a lot to be going on in your hearts right now. Nobody's crying yet. (laughs) The conviction of sin sends us into the arms of Christ and there is ample room for conviction of sin, but it also sends us into the arms of one who truly deals with angry hearts, who truly deals with flippant tongues in the new life that he gives and the wisdom that comes down from above, which is peaceable and pure and gentle which comes to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's look at this intensely convicting text, but also hopeful. And Mark first, that our anger and cruel words are sin. Mark second, that hearts right with God are eager to be right with people. And third, hearts right with God can forfeit their own rights. Mm -hmm. First, our anger and cruel words are sin against God. The Lord says, You have heard it said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hellfire. Now, the first thing to note is that Jesus is really reiterating what the law itself says. Again, he's not advancing the law here, he's not even intensifying the law here. Leviticus 19 17 states this You shall not hate your brother in your heart, you shall reason frankly with your neighbor lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Jesus isn't saying anything new here. He's making plain what had become obscure. And in this way, he's acting very much like the prophets of old. We went through Micah, but you could... Turn to any of the prophets. What are they constantly saying? You honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You draw near to me and you're covered in blood and it's the blood of your neighbor. Any notion that the law itself was deficient and that the law itself just called for some sort of bare external observance hasn't really reckoned with these really intense demands that the law itself sets forth. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. That's Leviticus. So the Lord Jesus Christ here is making plain what has become obscure. He's clarifying what had become confused. And what he's saying is man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Here he targets our anger as sitting at the heart of the sixth commandment. Anyone who's angry with his brother and then an anger that translates into cruel and flippant words, words that don't build up, words that tear down. I went back and forth, whether I should have made this point, but it seems fair to say that Scripture is plain, not all anger is sinful. That is important. Paul says in perhaps a more nuanced version of this same teaching, uh, be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give any opportunity for the enemy. So it's true that scripture is not so naive to say that oh, no, no you, you never should get angry ever, 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 ever. It has a category for a right response to sin being anger. But it's also incredibly realistic in that even if you're in that frame of righteous anger, you're still vulnerable. That's what Paul says, right? Be angry, but do not sin, and do not let the sun go down on your anger. He recognizes even if it's a righteous anger, even if it's an anger that perceives that what's being done is heinous, and it's heinous not because it's done against me, but ultimately because it's, it's harming others, and ultimately because it's against God's will. He says, even if that's the case, you're so sinful that you can't last long there. (laughs) But pretty soon, that indignation is going to start to be laced with the poison of your sin. It's going to be laced with a cruelty and a hatred that's unholy and sinful. I trust you've had that experience The reason I went back and forth about making that point is because Jesus liked to teach in a way that was black and white, all or nothing. He wasn't interested in sort of sketching out all of these exceptions, all of these nuances. He would just say things. Unless you hate your mother and father, you've got no share in me. You're just like, wait, what? Mm. You just, bam, work it out. Mm. It's the same thing here. Don't be angry with your brother. I think it's supposed to have the same effect on us. And the reason he would teach like that is because he knew that we were excellent lawyers. He knows that we are incredibly skilled attorneys when it comes to justifying our own actions. Right? Right? a Supreme Court justice when my name is on the line? Like, actually, you forgot about this case and this case and this president and this precedent, and that's why I'm right. If we walk away from this thinking, well, the Lord is displeased with most anger, but probably not mine, you've misheard Christ's teaching here because he lays all of our hearts bare because we've all done this. And he wants us to grapple with this penetrating analysis of the heart and he wants us to hear it with the same heinous tinge that we hear murder. Unlawfully taking a life. There's few words that cause the amount of recoil as murder. And Jesus says, your anger Anger, how quickly you are willing to rise up against a brother, how quickly you're willing to pronounce judgment, fool, moron, imbecile, heinous, he says. The Lord here seems to be correcting two coordinates, primarily the first we've already touched on, namely that this notion of righteousness that was then popular was primarily concerned with the letter of the law. Like, well, if if I haven't murdered, if I've actually refrained from taking a life, well, then I'm blameless, according to the law. He says, no, no, if you've been angry with your brother if you've been cruel in your words with your brother you are guilty but the second coordinate that he corrects is almost just as striking and it's that our primary concern is not with our standing before men our primary concern was with our standing before god Notice that he escalates that. He goes from judgment to counsel to the eternal hellfires. He's combating this notion that the primary concern with law is to keep order among men. That's the primary concern with God's law. It's just to keep a decent society. And a close corollary of that sort of thinking is that the real egregious notion in, with, and under my sin is that I'm going to suffer on a temporal plane. Whether it's in the esteem of others or whether it's in an actual court of man, both of those have human beings as the primary reference point for the reason why you should abstain from sin. So, not only is he saying you've got the law wrong, he's saying you've got the court wrong. (laughs) Your primary concern is not that you're going to be hauled in front of a human judge. Your primary concern is the court that judges souls. And you're guilty, and that's terrifying. This is really striking. I mean, you feel kind of the oddity of this. He's imagining here a court that's arbitrating anger. Like what court, what court can pronounce upon anger? He's imagining a court that takes up a case where a rather flippant insult has been issued. Stupid. He's like, well, like what court is going to try that case? You can imagine it's here being like, really? Like, there's a court that's going to try. Like, I I, I use that word all the time. And that's going to court? And not just a human court? <laughs> you can also notice, that I think, I don't know that anybody, well, I didn't see anybody else pick up on this. But notice that the first two say, In verse 22, angry with his brother, insults his brother, and then whoever says, you fool. So it's not directed at him in that instance. It seems to be a private utterance. It seems to be something that's said in secret that one day will be proclaimed from the housetops. That's another theme in Matthew. Matthew. So even the notion of sort of the jurisdiction of this court, it's like, wait, something I did in private, something I said that wasn't even to him, that wasn't around other people, that's being marshaled as evidence for why I'm guilty before the law, why I'm liable to the hellfires? Wait, what? Hmm. It's a staggering standard, isn't it? Would it be fair to say that we probably have too low a view of God's holiness? Anybody else think, even just for a moment, you don't need to show your hands, that seems unreasonable? (laughs) It's not. We see here in this good and beautiful law, God's perfect holiness and righteousness on display. And the reason why we're so sympathetic to our cause and not so sympathetic to his is because left to ourselves, we're guilty. (laughs) But there is good news here because if this is sin, it means there's forgiveness for this because Christ came to forgive sin. There's forgiveness for flashes of anger. There's forgiveness for cruel and flippant words that tear down and don't build up. There's true forgiveness from the one who even when he was angry, it was only ever a holy indignation. And even when he spoke, interestingly enough, the word that is forbidden here, fool, he actually uses of the Pharisees. He calls them fools. So even when he uttered this, it was with a holy intention. He did it blamelessly and indeed in righteousness. And thus he can forgive There's encouragement to know as he opens our hearts bare, as we think of, like, oh, wow, I I get short with people all the time. Not because they're violating God's will, but because they're getting in my way. I get short with my wife all the time. I get short with my husband all the time. I get short with my kids all the time. I get short with my parents all the time. This is saying nothing of people that I don't even like. He says, it's, you're liable to the hellfires just, what? Oh, wow, this is pretty tenacious. Oh, that's deep. Oh, that's in there. If it weren't coupled with the reminder that he came to forgive, that there is forgiveness, well, you'd sink into despair. But there's also hope because it means that he can actually touch this level of the person. You read the popular literature in sociology or even psychology. You're going to find a lot of literature that says that fundamentally people cannot change. You're going to find that refrain. Fundamentally, people cannot change. Now, I don't want to. Shape any naive notions of what change at this fundamental level looks like. But I will say with 100% confidence that the one who was raised from the dead has no problem accessing this level of the person. So I don't know how to thread that needle. I don't want to cultivate any sort of naive hope that you're going to flip some switch right here, right now, and walk away and never be angry again. That's foolishness. I'm saying that in love. <laughs> <laughs> but I also would hate for you to walk away hearing that there's no hope because He commands this level of existence, and He's the only one who does. That's what sets his kingdom apart from every other kingdom. I can't make this point enough because it's so fantastic. Other kings can coerce your bodies to move in a certain way through space. In love, this king transforms hearts such that they willingly follow him. No king can do that but him. Come on, that's cool. Not even Arthur could do that. (laughs) It's a penetrating examination because we do get angry with one another. We do speak flippantly words that tear down. And we ought to seek forgiveness first and foremost from the one who alone can forgive perfectly such sins but we also ought to habituate ourselves to flee to him as the only one who can actually generate kindness, compassion, understanding, love. And indeed, this is what he has come to give his followers. He takes this principle... And then he extends it into two applications. He's a a good preacher. Go figure. (laughs) The way he makes these applications is by giving two little scenes, two little scenarios, one of them in verses 23 and 24, and then the other one in verses 25 and 26. So if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. Go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. It's point two, hearts right with God are compelled to be right with God's people. There's a sense in which this first scene teaches us the necessity of reconciliation. Notice that it's worship that changes his perspective. I don't know if you've ever had this experience before. Perhaps, maybe you guys have more sanctified marriages than I do, but perhaps conceivably you've had a misunderstanding in your marriage. I'm sure that doesn't happen. And you're convinced. You walk out of that exchange saying, I'm never letting this go. <laughs> you wouldn't do that either, I'm sure. But imagine for a moment that you do. You have an argument and you think, "No, this one's it. I'm not letting this go. I'm never letting this go." And you set off with resolve in your heart to die alone. <sighs> I'm <just> overstating it. <sighs> but that's the insanity of sin. Have you ever noticed that? The insanity of sin? Have you ever noticed that? There's an insanity that like settles in, it like transcends reason. You're like, I don't care. I don't care that I can even make a case why I should let this go. I'm not letting it go. That's a dangerous spot to be in. I can say that because I can vividly remember being there in multiple instances, It's an unsettling spot to be in. In retrospective, you're like, that's an unsettling spot to be in. I don't know what I'm capable of in that frame, in that deranged frame. Sin is insane. So you're partly the Lord instructing us, don't, don't, don't tinker around with it. There's an urgency to both of these things. There's an urgency. Paul says it too, don't let the sun go down and you. Look, you don't want to toy about in that frame. You don't want to dance with the devil, as it were. You don't want to, inter- do- you don't want to tinker with that poison because there's no way not to be affected by it. Again, if we're constantly framing things in the terms of justification, we're going to miss this very real reality of the organic nature of the soul that not even a justified sinner can tinker with sin and not be affected by it because the soul doesn't cease to be organic. Just because you're pardoned, and you are, for all those who are in Christ, there's no condemnation. It doesn't mean it ceases to be dangerous. And so he's are saying, look, it's, it's a dangerous position to be in this irreconciled state. So there's an urgency. He's like, look, leave it, go. Leave it, go. <laughs> the urgency is even more plain in the second one. Quickly, quickly, be reconciled. Quickly, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. Quickly, be reconciled. But it's worship that changes his perspective. He's offering his gift. That commitment. Look, I'm, I'm committed. I'm committed to thinking that they're imbeciles because they are. I'm committed to that. I'm co- that's, that's my framework. It's their fault. They should stop being imbeciles if they want me to stop thinking that they're imbeciles. That's where I live. <laughs> And then you draw near. It's a fascinating perspective shift. So you offer your gift upon the altar. And then all of a sudden you're willing to go. Or at least you ought to be. Why? What catalyzes there? I'm an imbecile. (laughs) And yet he's welcomed me. I'm a sinner, and yet he's welcomed me. He had something against me, and he set it aside and welcomed me. Because what's the baseline posture of the heart if you're fomenting that grudge? It's pride, isn't it? I've been wronged. My name's been slighted. How dare they? I'm never forgiving this, ever. And then you draw near to the Almighty. You can't draw near to the Almighty in pride, not really. The infinite condescension just by virtue of being a creature. Mm. Let alone the egregiousness of being a creature who has sinned against his all good and benevolent creator. How do you maintain a posture of pride when you come into his courts? They're the idiots, not me. Oh. Worship changes our perspective because every week he summons us near. Every week he speaks his words of love to us. Every week he reminds us of the depth into which we've plunged ourselves and the depth into which he plunged to retrieve us. Every week you have this reorienting perspective pressed upon your hearts. What does that say about the grudges we nourish? Hearts reconciled with God ought to be yearning to be reconciled to one another. Twice it says your brother. Twice it says your brother. Twice. Go be reconciled to your brother. Go be reconciled to your brother. What's the paradigm that undergirds brother? Family. What's the paradigm that undergirds family? Your heavenly father. The one who's taking you into his household. The absurdity of two sinners clinging unto this grudge. Now again, you don't want to minimize the actual wrongs with transgress here. He's introducing a principle, and it's this perspective that puts the absurdity of it into its right light. Corollary passage to this is very plainly Matthew eighteen. Matthew 18, the parable of the unmerciful servant, the inordinate debt that's forgiven, and then the minor debt that's exacted, and the absurd contradiction of such a life. He uses the same image here that he closes with, this being thrown in jail until the last penny is paid. Matthew 18 is the other place that this is used. The coordinate of the mercy that we've received is to inform the coordinate of the mercy that we are to extend. The coordinate of the forgiveness that we've received is to inform the coordinate of the forgiveness that we extend. The heart of the father who is making his plea to be reconciled unto him through his ambassadors is what informs our heart desiring to be reconciled. And perhaps that's the simple takeaway. Do you want to be reconciled? And that gets to it, doesn't it? Because the deranged flesh wants to nurture that grudge, doesn't it? You want it. It becomes precious to you. I think we've made this illustration before. It feels unsettlingly familiar as I encroach upon the Tolkien ground. It becomes your ring. It's precious to you. The wrong that you've experienced is precious to you. The grudge is precious to you in a dark and twisted and poisonous way. So he says, your father's heart is making its appeal to the world to be reconciled through the cross of Christ. What's your heart towards your brother? And then he ups the ante. 25 and 26, plainly a different scenario. It's plainly a different scenario. He shifts language. He shifts image. No longer is it worshiping, and then you realize that there's this relationship that's strained that makes no sense to foster while you're drawing near. But then he shifts images. It's no longer worship. It's actually a legal situation. But he also switches language. It's no longer your brother, it's an accuser. It's an antagonist. So what's he saying here? Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out Until you have paid the last penny. That's a final observation I want to make. That hearts right with God are even able to give up their rights before accusers. This is a striking closing vignette here. And again, I want to highlight the urgency of the matter. Quickly. You're going to get there soon. (laughs) Don't delay. Make friends. <laughs> we're living under a pretty consistent delusion, aren't we? I trust you probably don't even look at it all that often. And the delusion is that we're guaranteed the next hour, we're guaranteed the next day, the next week. We entertain this delusion unthinkingly, and yet, nowhere is that specified. Nowhere is that sure. There's this loveliness uh, of forgiveness that Tolstoy captures really well in both War and Peace and Anna Karenina. Wrongs done of an order and a magnitude that just aren't common wrongs. You know, wrongs. Wrongs that are more to the order and magnitude of you stole my wife. (laughs) You destroyed our family. You destroyed my prospect of earthly happiness. That's sort of wrong. And in both scenes, Tolstoy somehow convincingly presents a scene where forgiveness is extended to the one who has wronged at that level of magnitude. But the one thing you realize in Tolstoy is that for Tolstoy, the grand perspective giver is death. Mm. both of those scenes of forgiveness take place on deathbeds or what are thought to be deathbeds. And that's the grand perspective giver in Tolstoy. Death, death relativizes everything. The encounter with this magnitude of a reality that comes for all of us, puts all of these other things into perspective. And he's not wrong. But that's not quite what gives the Christian perspective. What gives the Christian perspective is not death in general, but it's the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what gives the Christian perspective. It's not the fact that we're going to die. It's the fact that he died for us that gives us perspective on all of our strife, conflict, I mean, at the heart of what's going on here, I think Calvin gets it right. Calvin gets it right saying, "Whence comes all our injuries?" but from this: Each person is too tenacious of his own rights. Each is too much disposed to consult his own convenience and this to the disadvantage of others. Rather, the Lord calls us to put a restraint on our desires and rather to act to our own disadvantage than follow up on our rights with unflinching vigor. That seems to be the path he's trying to dissuade us from. He's saying, You want justice? You want to prosecute your rights unto the nitty gritty of what they're due to you? Let me tell you what that world looks like. He probably says it gentler than I'm saying it right now. (laughs) He comes to us gently and he says, Do you want to know what you have a right to? Do you want to know what belongs to you by a strict exactitude of justice? By a punctilious demand that your exact rights are allocated to you? The eternal wrath of God is what you have a right to. Maybe don't be so quick to trade in rights. maybe be a little slower to demand your rights. And isn't that what he did? He laid aside his rights. Isn't that what Christ did? Didn't we say he only ever calls us to lesser versions of what he did? What was his right? glory he enjoyed with the father before all worlds what was his right rank upon rank upon rank of creature saying worthy 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 what did he get Rank upon rank of crowd, crying, crucify him, crucify him. Did he insist upon his rights? No, he set them aside. Why? To retrieve those who yelled crucify him, namely you, namely me. And we insist upon our rights. Shame on us. I'm not saying it's not difficult, but I'm saying that the reason it's difficult is because we don't see rightly. We'll never have to overlook an offense that even comes close to the sin that he freely bore in himself. That's our king. That's our God. The loveliness of imaging him in this way, the loveliness of glorifying him in this way can't be overstated. It won't be seen in this world, but I trust it'll be made fully known in the world to come and he'll receive the glory sinner lay down your rights make friends lay down your beef be reconciled for the one who had rights against you has set them aside go and do likewise let's pray mm. Mm. father tumbling to come before your word i pray that you would build us up in truth Posture us aright before your mercy. Keep us from sinking down as you open our eyes to the heinousness of our sin and the depth to which it clings to us. Assure us of your love as you call us to do things of this nature. Go with us, Lord, as you have promised, for we ask in Christ's name, amen.